RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it wasn't too long ago that we had Dr. Piers Robinson, co-founder of the Organisation for Propaganda Studies and the Working Group on Propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror. We talked about propaganda. We had a great chat about that, actually, where we caught up uh, not too long ago. Dr. Piers Robinson is back because if you remember, Piers, welcome back. I wanted to talk about 9-11. Yeah, it's good to be back with you and happy to come back and, and talk about this issue. Okay, so I think we need to get a few questions out of the way before we kind of talk about the road that this took us on, let's say. First up, is it okay to ask this question, was 9-11 an inside job? Let's get let's get these out of the way first. Is there any possibility or should we consider in any way that it could have been an inside job? Well, I'll start off by, by saying that I mean, I'm on the – board of directors of the International Center for 9-11 Justice, um, which was relaunched uh, several months back. Ted Walter is the um, uh, executive director of the organization. And it's an organization which pulls together a very large body of work, which has been developed over the last 20 years, looking into issues surrounding 9-11. And uh, we did have a, a launch of a new film on Professor Graham McQueen, which people can view on, on Redacted uh, uh, hosting it. But it's uh, a documentary outlining Graham McQueen's life and work, his work on issues surrounding 9-11, and also his broader analysis of the permanent war machine, the state of war we now live in. It's a very powerful film, very moving film, and I recommend um, that your listeners take the time to have a look at this and also at the International Centre for 9-11 Justice, um, IC911.org. There's a lot of information there, which in a sense answers your question. (laughs) Is it okay to ask this question? Because, and now to answer that question for for you directly and for your viewers, yes, the bottom line is, is there is an ample amount of information in the public domain a lot of it extremely well-researched, which uh, raises profound and substantial questions about the official narrative on 9-11. And of course, the official narrative on 9-11 is that a group of non-state actors, Al-Qaeda, masterminded and carried out uh, the attacks in New York. But where we are now, sitting 20-plus years on from those events, we have a, a raft of scientific evidence regarding the building collapses, a raft of documentary evidence relating to, for example, the hijackers in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I could go on, but, but there's there's enough there for any reasonable, objective, impartial bystander to say, look, what we have here is an official narrative which is many, many substantial flaws and if those flaws are there and they can't be corrected then we have the official story and then that opens a door to understanding well okay um if there are questions unanswered um then the reality of 9-11 might in fact be very different from the one that has been promoted by uh western governments uh, over the last 20 years so th- th- we're way beyond the point at which uh, this is uh, as it were a wild theory, speculation by um, fringe uh, experts or, dare we say it, conspiracy theorists. No, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot, lot of evidence. And 
And so there are objective grounds to be asking those questions. And, and more importantly than that, in, in a way, given the scale of this event and its importance for our history, both current and, and over the last 20 years, it is essential that we do ask these questions because obviously if the official story is incorrect, then the truth may, might be down a rather rocky, dark road and point towards um, you know, very serious problems within our own countries. Um, so, you know, we're, we're way beyond the point at which it's reasonable to ask, and, and any reasonable person should be able to ask those questions. I recommend the Graham McQueen film see some of the evidence. I recommend the IC911 website because there's a lot of material and evidence there uh, which people can sift through. But obviously we can, as you've asked, go into some of the specifics which I can outline in, in the course of this interview. It's okay to ask a question and we should be asking that That's a question. It's our responsibility too as well. Because we have to believe that a bunch of guys sitting in caves you know, in Afghanistan were able to pull this thing together? Really? Well, I, I mean, at this point, I, I emphasize, of course, the official narrative on 9-11 is a conspiracy story. It's a conspiracy theory narrative that um, a group of al-Qaeda operatives masterminded the attack, carried it out, and so on, and are solely responsible for it. Now, the plausibility of that, I mean, one can go down the road of, of saying, well, how likely is a small group have been able to do that without significant support involvement of other actors. And I think that's a reasonable kind of sort of Bayesian approach to take chances of that. I'd say that we actually have set that to one side. We actually have some very hard evidence now, which indicate that uh, they were not solely responsible for everything that happened on 9-11. Um, I, I, but before we get on to those, those particular issues, whether it's the buildings or the planes and so on, um, you know, there has been the trial of the alleged mastermind of the um, Al-Qaeda plot. And that's been in pre-trial, as I understand it. So the people that the US government is, as it were, pointing the finger at and trying to hold responsible have, have yet to put them through a proper trial. Um, so people can read into that what they want. Um, but it is, of course, extraordinary that uh, after such a length of time, we've never got beyond pre-trial at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, where um, the mastermind is, is is being held. So, you know, that, that begs some questions. But, you know, back to my point, there is very hard evidence now. When one looks at the facts, when one looks carefully at the material which has been accumulated and the research which has been done, which does point to essentially the flawed nature of the official narrative. Okay. Here's another, you know, uh, rabbit holey uh, tinfoil hat question. Were planes actually involved? There does seem to be some doubt about that, even though everything we saw on TV shows that, that there were planes flying into buildings. But I think it's been pointed out and I have experience of this being a computer animator in a previous life, that it is possible with video layering to create these images which appear seamless on TV. I'm not saying it happened, but it is possible. So can we even ask that question? Well, I mean, my, my view on, on, on all of these, you know, any of these very controversial issues which are bracketed into the what would be described as state crimes against democracy and so on, it's important to focus on on the hard, solid evidence. Now, 
there's no um there's no indication that um as you're suggesting there was computer generated imagery inserted into mainstream media um michael cobbs has done a lot of work on that to demonstrate that, that there were real planes that were flown the really solid concrete information and evidence about the planes relates to questions of of how they were flown by inexperienced pilots in the way that they were and one of the sort of the stronger more substantive areas of inquiry is for example in, in the pentagon uh, plane as to how that plane was successfully flown in, in in an arc descending arc to then line up level with the pentagon um, and hit the target a feat which many people argue would have been challenging even for an experienced pilot so there's a big question over the control of the airplanes and whether there was remote control and so on and so forth um, and this Concerns and issues are raised about hit the two towers. Um, that there are legitimate questions, and there are, for example, professional airline pilots have raised questions about the feasibility of that, which sort of opens the door into this uh, area of questioning as, as to whether there was, you know, remote guidance and so on of the planes. Um, and I think that's the solid area which is 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 worthy of inquiry and investigation uh, far before sort of the kind of outline that you suggested um, of of there having been no plans. Um, you know, and and the other thing to keep in mind when when looking at the nine eleven issue is that as with all um, sort of areas of research and inquiry into these kind of issues, there are a lot of red herrings in circulation. Um, theories and arguments which, you know, some are perhaps um, genuinely held by individuals, but, you know, there is a little um, technique called cognitive infiltration. Cass Sunstein wrote an article on it, and, and this is where whereby you infiltrate movements and research communities, and you install misleading false information in the hope that you will ultimately discredit that movement. So without passing judgment on any of the theories out there, it's, it's very important to keep that in mind when looking at all of these possibilities. And then, you know, from my own point of view as, as a researcher, to just start with what is the most solid kind of material we have in issues that we have established and really get to the bottom of them first and and that is yes it, it is the feasibility of the planes having been flown at the speed they were with the accuracy accuracy they were especially the one at the pentagon um and yeah that this raises um a whole host of possibilities um i i think the pentagon being the strongest but also people who have looked very closely at uh the tower impacts that there are there are changes in course carried out by one of the aeroplanes, which are very, very slight, subtle adjustments and so on in, in the rem so remaining few seconds of flight, which, yeah. again, begs the question, can a very inexperienced pilot in flying an airliner at that speed really make those kind of adjustments and so on at, at the last minute? So... Again, this is this is an area where I think in terms of 9-11 research, one wants to bring in, and there already are a significant number of professional airline pilots who have signed and, and linked up with organizations in relation to this, but sort of real professional an analysis of those aspects of the questions which have emerged. 
Um, yeah, because uh, <clears throat> I believe that they were being flown beyond their maximum operating speed anyway, like, you know, 500 plus miles an hour. And that's a, 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 like uh, you mentioned, airline pilots I've heard talking on this saying it's virtually impossible to control the plane accurately to any level when you're flying in at that edge of the envelope. That is indeed an argument that, that has been made. Um, and and again, I, I think given given the, the initial sort of prima facie plausibility of, of the argument that look, especially with the Pentagon, how how could an inexperienced pilot have succeeded succeeded in doing this? Um, there's no other way around this now but to have you know a proper formal investigation by professionally qualified people, including pilots, to really get to the bottom of this. Um, so you, the point you raise about the operating speed, I've certainly heard that, and that certainly seems to be an issue. The planes were flying above their V Max or whatever at that house. Yeah, V Max. Yeah, and and yes, it would have, um, you know, have, some people claim made it very difficult to fly them accurately, especially um, if you've so. <laughs> just sort of come out of. Uh, well, I don't know if they came out of a cave, but, you know, were inexperienced in, in the way that we're led to believe they were. Well, th yeah, this is what is, you know, according to the official narrative, is, is that these were um, trainee pilots with relatively low hours in single-engine training aeroplanes, yeah. Cessnas. Um, you know, we don't, it's, it's not clear that they were given suddenly a vast amount of additional training which would al allow them to get to grips with with an airliner of that size. Um but you know that there is a considerable difference between the two, and so on, and and that's why so many professional pilots have raised an eyebrow at the idea of um, trainee pilots pulling off that kind of feat. Absolutely. So, okay, let's move to the buildings. The physics of the building collapses. The one that everyone talks about is Building Seven. We'll get onto that in just a moment. But you know, the the twin towers collapsing seem to. Well, I remember watching it at the time, and it felt like it was some kind of demolition job. It had that feel about it. It had that look about it. And the way it sort of collapsed neatly upon itself at the the free-falling speed it did, I think raised a lot of uh, question marks for even just average people with no engineering experience. It just seemed a bit too perfect, didn't it? Yes, I mean at the time, and, and if people uh, watched the Graham McQueen film, he swore on nine eleven. You'll see some of his work, and some of it did involve documenting the number of explosions from first responders, from eyewitnesses early on, uh, you know, on the day. And it is remarkable if you look at his work, and there are articles uh, attached to to that uh, his analysis, or, which is presented in the film. You, you have a remarkable number of firefighters and, and members of the public reporting explosions um, throughout the day. There are reports of explosions, you know, prior to the impact of the planes. There are reports of explosions in World Trade Center Seven, a building which. Uh, wasn't hit by a plane that collapsed five hours later. Um, and so th there's a lot of sort of eyewitness accounts reporting that. As you say, when you look at them, you have, with certainly the two twin towers, you have you know fires for, for approximately an hour in each tower at the impact points of where the planes went in. 
And then what you, one observes is, you know, according to the official story, there's uh, a weakening of the steel and there's a collapse. A collapse is initiated. And what you then see, and, and this is as far as the National Standards and Technology investigation went. They went as far as sort of making a case for why the collapse might have started. But what they don't do is then explain why the top section of the building, and it's particularly sort of... Uh, conspicuous with the North Tower, where the plane hit quite high up. Why, once the floors had weakened at that level, that small top section of the building, and it is a small top section of the building, was then able to crush through all of the remaining structure below, which was intact and undamaged and composed of increasingly thickening steel girders and columns and support and so on. Not at free full speed, but not far off and at a very constant rate of acceleration. And if you think of Newton's third law, equal and opposite reaction, what you'd expect is that the top tower, as it was crushing the structure below it, it would also be destroyed, equal and opposite reaction. And the top section would really been completely destroyed, you know, as it passed through the same number of floors below it. And therefore, it would not have continued through all of those floors, all the way down to the bottom. It, it defies, as it were, Newtonian physics. Um, and it's also inexplicable in terms of the, the official narrative, which is the, the collapse, the pancake collapse, the idea the top section is crushing the floors below, that there would be some kind of resistance to that. It wouldn't just smoothly and continuously go down to the bottom. And when one thinks through that and thinks through, you know, the point about um, sort of equal and opposite reaction, um, then I, I think if your eyes haven't been opened a little bit to this, this looks very odd um, in terms of the official narrative. You then look very closely at the film, which, you know, you can see on the IC911 website and also other websites uh, um, set up by researchers into 9-11. You can also see explosive blasts occurring below the collapse line. And some of these are notably distant from the collapse line. So there's uh, there's a, a very, uh, there's footage of a journalist, Burkett, I think it was his name, and it's, he's right at the base of doing a brief intro to camera and he's next to the firefighters. And then the tower starts to explode at the top and so on. And, and you know, he calls out a huge explosion raining down and then if you cast your eye to the bottom of that film, you'll see there's a blast coming out very low down in the building, actually in two sides emerging. And the official narrative is that this is in some way compressed air okay. pushing through the tower and right. coming out, which is really very implausible. They, they look um, exactly as, as, as I think they are. These are, explode, these are detonations going off prior to perhaps when they should have done um, so you start to see that kind of evidence, explosive blast, and you see that in a different light. Um, and then I, I suppose the final thing before we get on to WTC7, because it's perhaps important to talk about that because of the quantity of research which has been done into it. Um, you then, of course, have the fact that it was Steve Jones, Professor Steve Jones, very early on in like 2005-06, with a number of colleagues published uh, an analysis of dust samples from the World Trade Center and in samples, they found traces of, of what they described as, as, as thermite or nanothermite, a high-grade military explosive. Some of this was unreacted as well, which they then proceeded to react on camera, and you see this huge um, sort of spurt of energy coming out. 
So, you know, when you add that into the mix, what are you left with? Um, you know, explosive traces in the dust identified, um, a collapse which cannot be explained through sort of normal collapse mechanisms. Um, you're left with the issue of controlled demolition or whatever you want to describe it as being a prime suspect in this event. And to emphasize the point, given that NIST decided to stop their analysis at the point of collapse initiation, um, you know, one could just be very, very neutral and say, well, perhaps one needs to complete the remainder of that analysis and, and try to explain how it is possible for that top, those top sections of the building to have destroyed everything below them at such speed and so smoothly. Um, yeah. So I, I think I mean, there are other there are other details, but for me, those are the big ones. And for me, as 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 it were, you know, as as a, as a lay person coming at the kind of physics and having to sort of interpret and, and be educated by experts and so on, as scientists, mechanical engineers, and so on, those, those are the kind of issues which are most stand out, easy to understand, which I think most people can grasp on these points. Um, and realize that there's a there's a there's a big problem um, with the tower collapses. If if it was a controlled or orchestrated collapse on the back of the buildings having airplanes fly into them, so it wasn't enough just to have planes. Let, let's assume it was <clears throat> controlled collapse from the propaganda angle, which is kind of your expertise. Why could you not just leave it at a couple of planes smashing into the thing? That's still a huge disaster well, that still gets massive attention it still shocks the hell out of people why go for a collapse as well in a propaganda sense yeah well on on the one hand i'm glad you sort of raised this point about the propaganda of this because you know of course if one accepts the official narrative that al-qaeda did it it was a propaganda act primarily about by by Al Qaeda, it, you know, it was about destroying buildings, but it was really mainly about sending a powerful message out to a, to the global audience, etc. If this is, as you describe, an inside job, etc., then you know the the objective would be the same. It is a propaganda act. It's propaganda, and it's a deceptive, highly deceptive propaganda event. But it's designed in order to instill fear and panic and a sense of crisis. In enough of the population for you then to start to enact wars in the international system, which we'll come to in, in a couple of minutes, because that's exactly what happened, of course. So, you know, the, the idea is to have a propaganda act which is going to have a powerful, catalyzing, mobilizing impact on the psyche, particularly of the American public, but also globally, to sort of swell of global support and sympathy for America, so that when the bombs start coming down on Afghanistan. When Iraq is invaded, there's enough constituency and support for those wars to be carried through and so on. So you're trying to make it as dramatic as possible. And I suppose, and of course we're speculating here, but you know, a couple of planes flying into two buildings which do not then collapse um, might well be seen as, well, not enough. That you need to do, you know, planes flying into a building and then a dramatic collapse of the towers, which is, of course, is what you have. You know, you have dust clouds going through the streets of Lower Manhattan. You have people screaming. It's, it's, it's horrific watching some of the footage and, and the panic you can see in people as this is happening. So you know, you're heightening the propaganda effect. 
other people have pointed out that 9-11 is, and this was Graham McQueen's analysis, is that you know it's, it's a trigger for war. And in, in that sense, when some people sometimes talk about Occam's razor and say, well, this is a very complicated explanation, and you know, if that's more sort of complicated than the Al-Qaeda narrative. Uh, and so in, in some ways, false flags to start wars aren't particularly unusual. It's, you know, the, the, these are, it's a military and so on. And it has occurred before in history. So th- this event is, is, is a false flag in, all, in order to mobilize people and then to trip or, or gain a constituency to go to war, I, I think is, is, is a powerful organizing device to understand 9-11 and, and what it was about and why it was carried out. But that's clearly the primary trigger for war because it's the most plausible explanation of, of why this was, was initiated. But there are also people who argue that there's an economic dimension, as there always is in our world. There's an economic dimension to it and to this. And of course, people point out that the um, there was the insurance claim made on the towers, um, and that fed into the building of the new towers. You know, there was issues over the financial viability of towers, etc. They weren't um, particularly well occupied. There was apparently an asbestos problem, like I've heard. You can start to see the sort of financial incentives which might be circulating surrounding an event such as 9-11. I, I'm not that into sort of the primary driver. It strikes me that the primary issue here is the trigger for war idea. Yeah. But then if you have actors involved, people who own the towers, for example, who um, have a vested interest in these buildings being taken down so you can build a new one, etc., you know, the other big, very solid evidence on the kind of economic component is, of course, the insider trading, which was identified prior to 9-11. And this was the put, uh, put options going on the airlines, which were involved in, in the um, uh, the incident, uh, the event. And the put options allow people to, as it were, bet on the stocks going down. And some people made huge amounts of money on that. And the 9-11 commission, I understand, actually recognized that there was insider trading. And there's a couple of papers or more by economics professors saying that, look, you look at the the, the analysis of the, of the figures and so on, there's clearly insider trading going on in the, immediately before 9-11 on those stocks for those airlines. Um, and the 9-11 Commission said that um, I think they weren't going to investigate any further because the people associated with the insider trading couldn't possibly have had anything to do with Al-Qaeda. Oh, no. No, right. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it really a terrible? Just a coincidence. Persuasive uh, justification for stopping investigating them. So you've got that component. Some people made a lot of money on the towers coming down. There is this issue of the ownership and and and, and the rebuilding of the towers, etc. And that's all to actually to one side of the broader military industrial complex hmm. idea argument about um, how important wars and conflict are to the economies of the West, particularly the United States, and that's a powerful incentivizing force for actors um but to me i think a lot of that is secondary but the, they might be the plain some of the aspects of the event and taking towers down ent- entirely etc but you know we're kind of like in in speculation territory yeah. there as to exactly what was going on in their minds what we do know is that um you know Nearly all of the evidence points towards the towers having been brought down deliberately following the plane impacts. And 
I suppose if one was to really bend over backwards, one could sort of stay in a territory, oh gosh, well, was Al-Qaeda able to get in on the ground and actually get explosives into the building as well? You know, gosh, these 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 guys were good at what they were doing. Well, they were and good. I suppose that's a incredibly remote possibility. But really, it points finger or the road leads to the involvement of actors, you know, within the US system. Um, and mm. again, we're not sort of talking about necessarily some kind of very sort of crude conspiracy of, you know, Bush decided to do this. We're talking about elements within the US government. We're talking about questions surrounding the deep state, the national security uh, state, as some people describe it. And and there is uh, one of the uh, executive directors, one, one Kevin Ryan, his book, uh, written a book, uh, Another 19, and that's now all chapters from it are now available on uh, the IC911 website. Uh, a lot of detail as to the likely suspects, the political actors, military, who are likely, based upon evidence, to have had knowledge stroke or to have been involved in the events of 9-11 and he's done a lot of Kevin's done a lot of excellent work there it helps people to start to see the other side of this picture if, if the building collapses if they had to have been brought down through you know, explosives and so on and then who are the actors who might have been or likely to have been involved in planning this and so on um uh, and I think I think in Kevin's is you know probably aware but not really the guy who was in charge <laughs> of any yeah. of this as this was happening and so um, i'll get on to the um the other building in just a moment yeah but um while you're talking i i also i, I was reminded of that image of bush being told when he was i think at a school um having some kid reading to him or something like that and, and, yeah, and he's reading guy. a story about his story to school kids yeah. And I'm just wondering, because, you know, if we're thinking of a, you know, choreographing for the best effect and, and you mentioned him just before, would that have been again for propaganda purposes and the way it looks, you're at a school with kids. So that's a very innocent environment and the vi the feeling of violation could be enhanced by that. Is that something that we should also wonder about? Even the choreographing potentially of that, or was that just coincidental? I, I, I think it's worth, um, you know, it's reasonable to have informed speculation about that for sure. And I, I think you describe it very well that it, it presents this kind of image of innocence and there's this violation. The point that others have raised is is why Bush wasn't immediately removed by yeah. Well, um, and that's that's a point too. Yeah. That he was left there. That sort of America was under attack. He was at a public event, and and it's, it's for some people is is beggars belief that the security detail did not whisk him straight out of that room. Yeah. Um. As soon as they knew what was happening, so rather than leaving him there to continue reading the story, yeah, or like nothing happened. Right. The story, you know, which does you know suggest big questions of well, they they knew that there wasn't going to be an attack on that school because um you know they were organizing the other attacks um and so yeah. on so I, absolutely that that's the there are so many aspects of 9-11 and this is part of the purpose of ic 9-11 is to consolidate knowledge but then start to build research as we go forward because there's so much material to look at and so, and so many aspects of of 9-11 and the broader global war on terror 
um, which which need to be un- researched and understood and articulated in written form and, and in documentaries and so on. A lot of work to be done, but that's certainly that's certainly an area for some serious thinking to be done. Okay, to this building seven now. That seemed yeah. to be the, the the really weird part of this. It happened hours later. I think there was even a news report or report of a news report that announced it before it happened. It seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, if anything was looked like a controlled demolition, that was it. So what is the role of this building, do you think? Well, I mean, the role of the building, I mean, the World Trade Center 7, WTC 7, did house offices of you know, CIA offices, for example. Uh, and, you know, some people have speculated that was this the kind of command center where a lot of 9-11 was organized from, hence it was destroyed. And I guess that's a possibility. I think but before we even get to, to that area, yes, this building collapsed five hours or so after the Twin Towers did. It collapsed um, very, very rapidly, nearly full speed for about two and a half seconds. And for, for many people, it's been a smoking gun that there's more going on to 9-11 than the official narrative claims. Because, you know, it is somewhat odd to seal frame building with some layers, but not very many. Uh, should suddenly collapse um, next to the Twin Towers after five hours. And, of course, it has been subjected to a very detailed study by Professor Hulsey um, at Alaska Fairbanks University. And that was a four-year study. It was commissioned by AE911, the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And that reported several years back. And Hulsey was very, very clear through a couple of you know, finite element analysis, computer simulations done with different programs of the building collapse, et cetera, and what you see on camera. The only way they could model what you see on camera with, with this uh, free fall collapse is if all of the uh, vertical columns supporting the building, I think it's 58 in total, essentially uh, those supports were removed at the same, more or less at the same time. It's the only way you can get this building to come down so the Hulsey report, and it's very detailed and very extensive, um, in a sense, corroborates what other people have, have claimed and analysed over the years. Um, you're left with, yeah, the building suddenly collapsed. Um, and the only way you can explain that is if all of the columns suddenly gave way. And Hulsey is very careful. It's very objective. He says, so I, I'm not saying I know. I'm not saying how these were removed. I'm just saying this is the only way this could have happened if they were suddenly removed. Um, and leaves it for other people to then evaluate, okay, what could have caused that? Um, It's pretty difficult, isn't it, really, not to come to any conclusion other than that, you know, the columns were severed deliberately. Mm. Mm. And, of course, if they're severed deliberately, um, you know, and five hours after the Twin Towers came down, um, I suppose some people have even speculated, well, maybe, the, you know, the fire crew, that they took the building down because it was unstable. And, and of course, this was an argument that was in circulation during the day that, oh, the building's unstable, we might bring it down and so on. And this phrase was actually used in one or two settings and so on. And some people have sort of speculated, well, did they deliberately bring it down because it was just unstable after the Twin Towers had come down? Yeah. But of course... It's impossible to wire a building to detonate it to bring it down in the space of several hours. You know, impossible to do. So you're left with only one realistic uh, theory on that, which is that it was brought down prior to the event. So therefore, the event was uh, 
staged, etc., um, or carried out by actors on the ground. Um, and that's yeah. where you're left. And, you know, it's very easy looking at Building 7 to see that visually that, yeah, this is coming down symmetrically onto its own footprint. Um, I mean, Barry Jennings, who was uh, inside the building, who's deceased now, unfortunately, but he, he reported in a, an interview that he was trapped inside that building after explosions had gone off below him, blowing out the stairwell, and he became trapped, along with uh, Rudolph Giuliani's attorney, and they were eventually rescued by firefighters. This film of them, sort of, of Giuliani's um, attorney waving a white flag, they're eventually rescued. Now, you know, Barry Jennings was very clear in an interview um, with, I think, the director of um, the Loose Change documentary. Um, yes, that he was in the building. It was explosions were going off. I think he used the phrase all the time. But he certainly described becoming trapped in the building after an explosion below him, which took out the floor, uh, the stairwell. So... Again, another eyewitness uh, presenting information which is very much contradictory to uh, the official narrative. Um, but for some, a smoking gun. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll reserve judgment on whether I call it a, an absolute slam dunk smoking gun. But obviously, it's very, very powerful evidence that um, the events of 9-11 were essentially, you know, this does fit the picture of a false flag operation to help start major conflicts in the international system to help project American power um, in the waning days of the empire. And, I mean, if, if you'll let me, this in a way is, is, is how I first became much more conscious of the problems around 9-11 was um, the Chilcot Inquiry in Britain into the Iraq invasion in 2003. Interestingly, released a lot of the communications between Tony Blair and George Bush in the weeks and months after 9-11. And they are talking about regime change wars. They're talking about when to hit Syria, Iran, Iraq. And... And it became very clear to me that, well, whatever the truth of 9-11, this was clearly going to, this was clearly being used in order to trigger major conflicts in the international system. Um, and there's a strong argument to be made that these conflicts have flowed through to Libya and Syria. And also, in a sense, a part of the journey to where we are now with a standoff with Rus the Russian Federation over the Ukraine, which runs a risk of getting worse. This is the war machine, as Graham McQueen describes in, in, in the film Peace War on 9-11, the permanent war machine, which has underpinned you know, our societies in the West. Eisenhower warned of the military-industrial complex. Well, here it is in play and the creation of events such as 9-11 in order to get the ball rolling with major conflicts in the international system. Something, of course, the neoconservatives were planning in the 1990s, and they even talked about, there's even a paper written about the need for a Pearl Harbor style. There will need to be a Pearl Harbor style event to occur for the American public to be willing to back American use of force internationally as we confront the emerging contenders, China, a resurgent Russian Federation, and so on. Um, all, in a sense rather painfully clear and, and simple to explain in terms of a brutal real politic and Machiavellian calculations by uh, political actors. Brutal. Um, and brutal is the word, Machiavellian is the word as, as well. And look what it's unlocked, and I was just going to add to that. Also, the whole 
security and you know um, uh, monitoring surveillance regime that we're experiencing now had its its days back then. Here's the thing, though. It's such an audacious plan, let's say if it was a plan, to carry that off, to pull it off and have it go the way it did because it could have gone wrong and it could have backfired. So you'd have to be incredibly confident to a high level of confidence that you could pull this off, right? You'd you'd have to. Absolutely. But this is where there's an important learning moment here. And you're absolutely right to draw the parallels of where we are now, because as some people describe, you know, COVID-19 event is is 9-11 on steroids um, and so on. But we can talk about that another time. Um, But what 9-11 tells us is is that essentially it's a learning moment for understanding how co-opted, for example, our mainstream media is, how co-opted academia is, how much control, the, if you want to call it a deep state, call it a deep state. You can call it the permanent state or the national security state or the military industrial complex. Choose your, your term. But that exists and is very real. But what 9-11 tells us is that the penetration of that deep state is much more extensive than perhaps some of us thought. And so people such as myself would have held to the position you just described. that They can't pull this off, you know, without it coming off the rails. But of course... If they have a lot more control than you thought they had over mainstream media and academia, then they do have the ability to do that. And they probably also know that the kind of the, the ability of the public to really confront that terrible reality that their own government might have been involved in this is a is powerful psychological dynamics going on where people just don't want to entertain that possibility. Just as in a family, you know, if there's abuse going on, often the siblings and, and the wife, for example, don't want to entertain the possibility that a member of the family is carrying out sexual abuse and so on. This is you know, quite familiar to sort of people who, who look at these areas and support people who have suffered that. You know, people don't want to go there. And I think people carrying out these events will have known that. And of course, the argument also that, that you just articulated, and I said that I would have subscribed to once, is the same argument you can make in relation to JFK's assassination. And if we go with Bobby Kennedy and the raft of other people, and probably most in public, that Kennedy was assassinated and it was the CIA who were behind it, as well as other, a number of other state actors, they got away with that. They got away with it not because they persuaded everybody, because a lot of people have always been skeptical. And now I think people are more skeptical than ever, especially since Bobby Kennedy has been very clear that his uncle was murdered by the CIA. But they were able to carry enough of the institutions of society, you know, the authoritative voices, the academics, the journalists, carry them up, carry them along with it to make sure that, you know, it, they could get away with it effectively. Um, the question now for us, 2023, after COVID-19, with all of the awareness about 9-11, and th- there are more people talking about 9-11 than I've ever seen before, you know, or Tucker Carlson has been hinting at it. Um, in the UK, George Galloway was talking openly about this. I heard Philip Giraldi, former CIA, um, talking about that on a podcast three days ago, openly talking about uh, inside job, etc. That thing is 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 bubbling up to the surface, I think, in a big way, as the JFK issue is. And in the context of the COVID event and the skepticism that there is in relation to that, one wonders whether they will continue to get away with all of this. 
um, that there have been state crimes against democracy, scads, as Mark Behaven Smith called them, structural deep events as the kind of organizing term that Peter Dale Scott uses to describe the, these events. We have so much evidence and we have so much awareness of these things for what they are now. Um, perhaps we are at a point, an inflection point, where um, the power centers in the West are not getting away with this anymore. Um, and we are going to, in a painful, slow process, see a move towards accountability. And that's certainly what IC911 wants to achieve. You know, there's evidence and facts that we have, and, you know, we should strive for accountability. Ultimately, we need to try and stop these crimes from occurring again. But I, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we are at that point now. There's a lot of awareness of these things, um, whether JFK, 9-11, or issues surrounding COVID um, that I think, you know, we have an opportunity now to recognize the corruption and then start to do something about it so that we can hopefully move forward in a world where um, we don't have these terrible crimes being committed. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Big, it's wow. a bit much for a Tuesday morning, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that was I think that's where we are. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating to talk with you about this, and I think you're right. There is, it does seem to be an uptick in talk about nine uh, eleven. It's it's never gone away, but it is kind of resurging, is my impression. So, Dr. Piers Robinson, uh, co-founder of the organization for propaganda studies and the working group on propaganda and the nine eleven global war on terror. Our second conversation. Thanks so much for giving us some more time. It's really interesting. Thanks very much. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.